Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. Kobe Bryant called her a secret weapon, but as the head physical therapist for the Los Angeles Lakers, Judy Cito is responsible for far more than the health of the 18-time NBA All-Star. She has a roster of players to care for over an 82-game regular season, plus preseason, postseason, and the offseason. In this episode of Move Forward Radio, Judy gives us a glimpse of what NBA players go through to perform on the court night after night and city after city. She also provides tips for amateur basketball players who want to stay on the court. Here's our conversation with Judy Cito. So Judy, take me kind of behind the curtain of the NBA. You've got a roster of players that you're going to treat at any given time. It's an 82-game regular season. It's games across the country, often night after night. It's a really physically demanding sport, never mind the travel, but that adds on top of it. During the season, just starting there, kind of what's your average day like? For us, there's basically two different days. Is it a game day or a non-game day? On a typical game day, uh, we usually play at 7.30 in the evening, and our day will start at 8.30 in the morning. So the training room will open at 8.30, and players are coming in, and we're dealing with maybe um, a rehab issue, a prevention issue, getting them ready for shoot-around. Players report at the practice facility by 9.30. So we have that hour before they report to take care of any issues that might be lingering to get them ready for the evening. If we've got a player out, we're doing the rehab. Shoot-around will start at 10 o'clock. usually starts with a film session anywhere from 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes, depending on the opponent. And then they get on the court, run through some play. That'll maybe take them an hour, hour and a half. And then we'll do a little recovery. Players will have their meal. And then everyone breaks for the afternoon. So we'll be done in the training room maybe by 12.30 on game day. Break in the afternoon. Players will get their afternoon nap since we're going late into the evening. We report at the arena, if it's a 7.30 game, we'll actually be there two and a half hours before the game starts, and then we'll do it all over again. I'll be looking at any range of motion issues, alignment issues, releases, getting them game ready, preparation, activation. They'll do some work with our strength and conditioning coach, maybe with our massage therapist. We also have two athletic trainers, So there's actually five people that make up our training staff. And then we go into the game. Game lasts about two hours. And then after the game, uh, hopefully there have been no injuries during the game. We're always on the watch for anything that might be happening that we need to address during the game. Hopefully it's a quiet evening for us. And then after the game, uh, we're there for another half an hour to an hour after, depending on what's going on, we're doing some recovery, a lot of icing, uh, maybe some stretching, maybe some flushing, and then we uh, do it all over again the next day. So when do you sleep and all that? 
a lot of people they they don't realize how long our day is, especially on game day. And they see a game and they see that, well, you guys just play for two hours and now that's it. It's like, well, we've been going all day. And then when I get home, and I know that that's true for the players and the rest of the staff, it's really hard to go to sleep right away because you're going all day, but also from the excitement of the game, the stimulation, the noise, the lights, you know, the activity, it actually takes a little time to wind down. And on the road, it's even harder. So you know, it's it's tough to get regular rest and to be on a, a really good um, sleep schedule. And with all the time zone changes and just all the flying that we do, I think we'll travel about 40,000 miles this season. So you know, we try and get our rest when we can. And that afternoon nap, that works for us too. So, you know, I know I'm tired. I'm not even playing a basketball game. Uh, it's amazing what the players have to go through in order to play a two-hour game. So all players are dissing, obviously, but, you know, they're, they're, once the season starts, because I want to get to the preseason here in a second, I mean, how healthy are guys? You know, are they all going basically? Is 90% basically become 100%? What's realistic? How beat up do they get during the season? During the season, it's, it's like a marathon. It's uh, many, many months. Um, you don't want to peak too soon, and you don't want to not be ready. So our season uh, officially starts uh, preseason, end of September, beginning of October, depending on if you have to travel overseas. The NBA has a lot of teams going overseas, making the, the game, the basketball game, more global. This past preseason, we actually went to Hawaii. People think, oh, that's great. You know, you get to spend some time in Hawaii. It's like a vacation. It's like it's no vacation. We actually have double-day practices, and we are bringing so much equipment because we have to have everything that we possibly expect to use with us. So we actually bring about 2,000 pounds of equipment with us when we travel. That's incredible. That's, that's a lot, yeah. And we set up a road training room wherever we go. We're at a hotel. We'll actually have an empty hotel room, and we'll set up our on-site training room, and that's separate from the one that might be at the arena in the visitor's locker room training room. So when we're on the road and we're going to practice or shoot around for the day if it's game day, we'll bring guys in before we go over to the arena. That way when we arrive at the arena, they're ready to go. So if there's any stretching, if anyone has any um, injuries that we're addressing, any alignment issues, any activation, we'll do it beforehand. So even before we leave to go to the arena when we're on the road, we open up the training room an hour, 15 minutes before we have to leave. So our days are, are long. So just even our season. So the preseason starts, like I said, uh, September, October, and it runs for about a week, and then we go into our preseason game and schedule. And then we play um, 82 games during the season. There are some stretches we'll actually play four games in five nights. We're playing games where from the end of the game to the start of the next game is less than 24 hours in between. So recovery is very, very critical. Um, it's important that we try to facilitate as much rest and recovery for the players as we can and try to make sure that they're at their best throughout the season and they're peaking at the right time. 
because if they're not, if they peak too soon, then they don't have enough for the end of the season. If they're not ready for the season and we're trying to catch up, it's very difficult to catch up because whatever they've done in the off season prepares them for the season. So it's almost, I use the analogy of like a squirrel storing nuts for the winter. So whatever you do in the off season, basically that's almost as strong as you're going to get. And that energy we have to maintain, that strength, your endurance, your cardio, um, we have to maintain throughout the season. And it's more maintenance by then. If we haven't had the players build up their strength by the time the season, which starts end of October, uh, if they don't have it by then, it's really hard to catch up. So that's a great description. So then, you know, kind of flipping that then, how quickly after this a season ends do you begin that kind of the, the storing of the nuts, the, the building up for the next year? As soon as the season ends, we tell the players, just take time off. You need to recharge your batteries not only physically but mentally. The basketball game is a mental game too. There's a lot of demand and stresses, not only for the game but outside peripheral stresses that impact how they play. So it might be the demands from their families and friends, the focus they get from the media, maybe outside interests that they have in endorsements, interviews, whatever else that's extraneous from the basketball, it all adds to the stress. So once the season ends, we tell them, take time off. Don't even go to the gym. Don't even pick up a basketball. It might be for a couple of weeks. It might be a month, depending on the person. And just get away from the game. But that doesn't mean they're couch potatoes. They're still going to be active. They're still going to be doing something, but it's going to be more for fun. And then when they're ready, it might be, you know, four weeks, six weeks, and it's like, okay, they'll start to trickle in. And a lot of the guys, they don't live in the area. Their home base is actually maybe in another city or, or another state. And so they're given a program of what they need to focus on, not only on the basketball side, but on the training room side. So maybe they need to work more on their core endurance. And I use that word core endurance as opposed to core stability specifically for a reason. Because so much is talked about with your your core and your trunk stability, but really it's a lot of core endurance. And the core, if you think of it as a foundation, that's your platform that you need to work from. So in physical therapy, we often say, proximal stability for distal mobility. So you have to have this strong base in order from which you can move from. So if their core cannot sustain the load during the entire activity that they're doing, then more force is placed maybe somewhere else. It might be their shoulder, their knee, their back. So a weak spot for a lot of athletes is their core endurance. How long can they sustain those forces and the loads over time? Because the core is not designed, the back isn't designed to be a power lifter. It's designed to be a stable base. I think people don't think of it in terms like that, but for us, that's what we think about a lot. So you're, you're focusing on that core endurance and then to, to prevent, obviously, any number of injuries. But are, is there such yeah. a thing as a collection of, of common NBA injuries? You know, if, if you had to think of the top, I don't know, three to five things you treat. Is there a list like that or is it just too varied? Oh, yeah. 
actually, I just saw a stat that came from Duke University that said uh, 42% of basketball injuries are ankle and foot related. And a lot of what we do, you know, in terms of specific injuries are related to the foot and ankle, ankle sprains. You step on someone's foot, another player's foot, and you turn your ankle. You might land a little awkwardly, pivot a little funny. Someone knocks you, pushes you, and you plant a little differently, and you can sustain an acute traumatic injury like an ankle sprain or something over time like a stress fracture. So looking at uh, probably the top injury, that's one of them right there. And then comes the knees. That's probably the next area that we see the most injuries. So the more traumatic injuries are meniscus injuries with the pivoting and cutting. That's one of the more common ones. If someone runs into your knee, pushes it, you can sustain a medial collateral ligament, the ligament on the inside part of the knee. If you get pushed from the outside, that can get sprained. The anterior cruciate ligament, ACL injuries are are becoming less common. I think for the last maybe five years, NBA has been averaging maybe five ACL injuries a year, which out of 450 possible players, that's actually pretty good. The numbers are low. The only problem is the severity of that type of injury is high. So the number of lost games due to that type of injury is high, just like an Achilles tendon injury. You'll lose someone for an entire season. After that, I'd probably say uh, backs, even though I don't think the back injuries are becoming as, as common in basketball, only because I think more focus is placed on looking at the core endurance and stability, people's alignment and positioning. I think uh, the league as a whole has done a better job of, of cutting down on those injuries. And then uh, after that, it's probably shoulder. So someone who maybe is going up for a shot or rebounding and someone's pulling on their arm, you're going one way and then the force of you being pulled is going another way. So a rotator cuff tear or a labrum tear are one of the more common shoulder injuries along with a dislocation. So your arm getting pulled back, um, that would cause a dislocation. So those are the traumatic acute injuries. And then another class of injuries has to do with overuse. So the repetitive stresses and strains, um, the load over time, players getting tired, fatigued, and then still having to go out there. And now you're looking at your itises, your tendonitises, like patellar tendonitis, um, impingement, shoulder, rotator cuff tendonitises. So um, those are probably the, the most common basketball injuries that we see. So obviously, the, you know, the amateur athlete or any athlete, I guess, you know, the, those turned ankles, things like that, some of those you can't quite prevent. You land on somebody or you don't. You know, some of that comes down to bad luck. With those wear and tear injuries, you know, you and, and even some of those traumatic ones, you said ACLs are going down. You said, you know, back injuries seem to be going down. What can an amateur athlete learn uh, to, in terms of staying on the court that they can take from what professional athletes do? Obviously, they're not going to have a five-person medical training staff but they're also not going to travel to cities across the country. But what can they take away and apply themselves to stay healthy and stay active? The main preventative issue that I see with weekend warriors, amateur athletes, um, competitive um, uh, people who 
take their sport very seriously, or just people that get out there and play basketball, is that you can't play your way into shape. You need to have some level of fitness and strength, flexibility in order to get on the court. So if you're a student or an executive and you sit all day, every day in your job, that's what you do, and then on a weekend it's time for you to play a little pickup, maybe you've got a league, you get together with friends, and now you go out and play, but your body is used to sitting most of the time and you haven't prepared it to now endure those stresses. You haven't stretched, you haven't strengthened, um, but you don't have a lot of time today, so you just get out there. It's, it's the same thing for a runner. I see people who run and they don't have time in their day to set aside a lot of time for this activity, so when they get out the door, they start running instead of, I need to warm up, I need to stretch, I've got this 10K that I'm training for, this marathon, and, you know, I'm behind schedule, so i got to really push my mileage. So it's that lack of preparation that I see that can put people in a position that they are more susceptible to injury. That's one thing. So during the week, even if they can do something, something in terms of stretching to increase their flexibility, do a little cardio so the first time they're running on the court is not the first time they've run all week. They're doing strengthening exercises, especially for the lower body. With basketball, there's a lot of not only running but explosive movements, cutting. So even body weight work, if you can't get to the gym, there's no reason why you can't work on like partial squats, bridge work for your glutes, balance work, so when you're pivoting that you don't turn an ankle. So there's ways to cut down on your risk of injury. So we're not going to go through any specific NBA players and, and talk about their injuries necessarily. On the other hand, I want to cite one thing and then use that to pivot to a different question. So um, a couple of years ago, Kobe Bryant referred to you as his secret weapon. Um, first, I, I want to know what that feels like to you. Uh, you're kind of behind the scenes. This is a guy who obviously is very much under the spotlight. So first of all, just personal reaction, uh, how did that make you feel? Well, I thought it was kind of funny myself. I've known Kobe for quite a number of years, and like you said, we're in the background. We're the ones that you hopefully don't even see because if you see us and we're tending to someone's injury, um, something's going on that we that needs our attention. So it's almost like the conductor, you know, that you don't see, but you hear the music of the orchestra type thing. So when he actually said it, it it's kind of funny because I've been working with him. I've been working with a number of athletes for a number of years. It's just that a lot of athletes don't want to share that information with any other athlete because they want an edge. If they have something that they feel gives them a little edge over someone else, a lot of times they don't want to share. So the only reason why he even shared that information was I joined the Lakers full time. So I wasn't working with any other team. I wasn't working with any other athlete except for the Lakers. So if anyone else knew that I was working with them, by that time it didn't matter because I was already committed to this organization. So he could he could tell anyone he wanted. But here's a good example of how competitive athletes are, especially him. So in 2008, that was Kobe's first Olympics in uh, Beijing. And so I went to make sure that athletes that are working for the Olympics and representing our country 
uh, want to make sure that they're not going to be injured and that they're ready to go at the start of the season. So I actually went to China, make sure that I was okay, no problems, no issue. Well, that was also how the Sol's first season with the Lakers, too. He had just gotten traded to the Lakers, and he represented Spain. He didn't know that I was there in China. So when we got back and we found out that I was there, he asked Kobe, like, you didn't tell me that Judy was in China. How come you didn't tell me? He goes, you play for Spain. I play for the U.S. Of course I'm not going to tell you. So <laughs> that, that just goes to show you how competitive athletes can be. So it was very flattering that he would share that information. I certainly don't take for granted my opportunity and responsibility of working with not only different athletes, but different people. A lot of times people, when they're from the outside looking in, and wow, you know, you're working with all these athletes. It, I got my start working with non-athletes and weekend warriors and, you know, college students, high school students, um, people from all ages. And because of that experience of working with all those groups of people and working with physicians that also work with that population, I was given the opportunity to work with more and more different types of athletes and eventually co-athletes. And because of that, I gained their trust. And it's no different than earning the trust of someone like you and I. Because someone who is not a pro athlete and they're coming in to see us, they're trusting us to help them. So how I view helping an athlete, I don't view that any differently than helping someone who's not a pro athlete. So one of the great things about that Kobe Bryant story, and, and the reason I wanted to go back to it too, is you know he's, he's wrapping up what's been a 20-year career, I believe. You talked about the fact that these players are competitive, and so they don't want to reveal the edge. But the other thing that that reveals is if there is an edge, that means that something's evolving. So you look at where things were in terms of how player prepared when Kobe started his career 20 years ago versus what it is now. It's obviously vastly different, or else there would be no secrets to protect. And so along those lines, just in your experience, what is different now uh, about the way a player evolved than it was maybe five years ago, ten years ago, however far you want to go back? What evolution are you seeing in how these NBA players uh, try and prevent injuries and prepare themselves to last through a season? There's certainly more talk about recovery, uh, more than any other time that I can recall. In the past, there's been more talk about how can I improve my game my skill set, my uh, basketball IQ, and a lot of it focused specifically on the court, what they do in their sport. And then probably after that is, what can I do in the weight room? How can I make myself stronger, faster, bigger, more explosive? But now more of the talk has been on recovery, especially in our sport. There's so much time that spent on the road, the travel, the stresses, our schedule. Our schedule is very unique in how many games we play in a short amount of time and the load that's placed on the body. So the, the edge that people are trying to get now is on recovery. Uh, looking at sleep, sleep is, is vital. The number of injuries that occur 
because people aren't well rested or hydrated or physically ready to go because they're they're tired and that the importance of sleep not only on the physical aspect but also on the mental aspect so you think you're able to overcome that lack of sleep and rest on the court physically because you've done your work in the weight room but if you don't have that mental sharpness because you're tired then you make the wrong decision your reaction time is a little slower your decision making is not as clear your focus and your concentration level isn't as clear that all goes back to your preparation and your sleep so a lot more focus has been on sleep and the rest and then the other part is what can we do to facilitate the recovery process are people icing uh, are they using whole body ice baths are you doing stretching uh, what are you doing before the game in terms of preparation? And then the other part is nutrition. You know, what are uh, athletes actually eating? And is it a more balanced diet, a healthier diet? What types of ingredients are being uh, used? Uh, what method of cooking are you using? What fluids are you using for replacement? How much sugar are you consuming? So all these things are being looked at and tweaked to try to optimize uh, performance. Ten years ago, this really wasn't as widely discussed. It wasn't the edge, as you put it, that people were looking for. Now it's becoming more commonplace that people are looking at that. And how can they incorporate that as part of their regular routine? So let's close out with this then. You know, you, you're treating players who are highly motivated to do all this stuff, right? You know, they, they want to play. They want to make a living. Um, oftentimes guys even have incentives in their contracts based on number of games played or things like that, all of which suggest that they should take every uh, health tip that you give them and run with it. But I've got to think that they don't all go to it as willingly. Uh, so how do you motivate them? And then how do you apply that, you know, when you're talking about that weekend warrior who knows they need to get out there more, knows all the quote-unquote right things to do, but finds a hard time getting them to do it. What, how do you motivate somebody to actually taking action on all those smart things to keep people healthy? Now, that's tough. Everybody's different. Uh, athletes are no different. Everybody has a different motivating factor, and a level of understanding, what works for them. So it can't be one program fits everybody. Um, that would be like you only eat one vegetable, one protein, and one carb for a year and no lack of variety, no consideration for what you like, what you don't like. You're just going to just do this program. And it doesn't quite work that way because, you know, you, you have to motivate people and engage them. It's not a one-way communication. So we have to get to know the person. Uh, we have to get to know the athlete. And so we give them choices and options, but within maybe give them options of this as opposed to this. So, for example, these types of oils, if you cook with it, your olive oil, your coconut oil are better than your corn or vegetable oil. Just healthier oils are better, and these are the reasons why. So the education part is crucial. Every person, every athlete has a different level of understanding, but also a level, a different level of desire for understanding. There are some people like your Kobe Bryant. They want to know as much as they can. They want to know the ins and outs and the technical details of a lot of things, as opposed to someone else who just says, just just tell me what I need to do. 
you know, and then I'll, I'll, I'll pick from that. Or just make it easy for me. And then you have everybody in between. You know, but it, it's a lot of it to get the buy-in for a person. They have to understand not only what it is that's going to benefit, why are you telling me this, but what's in it for me. So for the weekend warrior, it's the same thing. You know, nobody really likes ice, but what's in it for me? Why is icing going to benefit me if I do it? Well, you know, the icing is if you've got a, an injury, especially a past injury, one of the greatest predictors of future injury is if you've had a past injury. So if you maybe sprained your ankle before, there's a greater chance you're going to sprain that one again versus someone who's never sprained it at all. So the importance of you doing prevention is even more important for you. That's going to be part of the education. And if we do a little stretching or icing, you know, that soreness that you feel midweek because you played five games, you know, in the last, you know, two days over the weekend, you're not going to feel that. And because of, you know, this ankle injury and you, you've never fully recovered from it and you don't even realize you're favoring that side and you're putting more load on your other leg. And now you've got a knee problem because you've been limping a little bit or you didn't realize it. Or because of this knee patellar tendonitis that you have, you've actually been not loading that leg more and now you have a back problem. So it's this education that is important to share with people so they understand the why of it, but also what's in it for me. So, you know, understanding that motivation and that level of interest or uh, their level of understanding is very, very important. Well, Judy Sito, thanks so much for this level of education and appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guest is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at moveforwardpt.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit moveforwardpt.com radio.